notice that they had to go into the city to get to <laughs> to bring to the suburbs. You are listening to Urban So welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, we've got one of your hosts, me, Billy Brown. We've got other hosts. Tony Crowsdale. And we have our guest host. Tobias Landberg. Tobias, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Who are you? I am a professor of biology at Arcadia University in Glenside, just north of Philadelphia. And I study reptiles and amphibians primarily. I dabble in insects and, and other things as, as the mood takes me. <laughs> Uh, my, my training is in functional morphology, which is how animals do the things that they do, locomotion and respiration, that sort of thing. Um, but I also get into uh, evolutionary ecology, and so the ways that organisms' environments affect their uh, life history strategies and the way that environmental change affects the expression of morphology and what what animals can do cool i'll start with some of our usual reminders if you like the podcast and if you're listening to it and it isn't your first time you probably like it so go on itunes um stitcher whatever your your hosting platform and please rate us rate us positively leave us any comments you want because we take that stuff seriously um please tell everyone you know about the podcast so that they'll listen to it and love it also if you want to tweet us tweet us at herb wildlife cast um, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, all great ways to connect. Um, and if you want to contribute to the show, you can, hey, email us or tweet at us and tell us what you want to talk about. Or you could just record something short, um, especially if it's an observation of some kind of urban wildlife. Um, and we include plants in that. So if you're seeing some neat wildflower growing out of your sidewalk crack in, I don't know, Cairo, or if you're looking at pigeons wherever they are in the world, because they're everywhere, um, or civets in Singapore, or cockatoos in cans, or um, or raccoon dogs in in Tokyo, um, record a little bit on your phone and send us the file. We'll call it some wildlife bling, and <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it on the show. We're gonna start with uh, listening to an interview I did with sort of the director of a university nature reserve in Mexico City. Full disclosure, I have a bias towards Mexico City. I love the city. I think it's one of the great cities in the world and doesn't get enough respect from Americans. And um, I was looking around and I found this uh, sort of nature reserve in the middle of, um, of Mexico City, which for context, we're talking about Mexico City with a population of somewhere between 18 and 20 million people. Um, it's a huge city. Uh, and the, the UNAM, the, the sort of national university, is enormous. Total enrollment, something like 500,000 um, on multiple campuses. The main campus in Mexico City um, has a population, if you include employees and stuff, of about 250,000. You just made an oh my lord face. So when they call it the Ciudad Universitaria, like the university city, it's really like a city in the middle of a huge city. Yeah, we will hear about a couple species of smaller ma mammals. And um, this whole conversation ended up segueing into a discussion of axolotls. Um, and then he also talks in the, in the discussion about a, a suburb, what is now a, not a suburb, sorry, what is now a neighborhood in Mexico City called Xochimilco. Um, and Xochimilco includes some, some of the lake that used to be most of Mexico City. Mexico City is in this basin in the mountains, it used to be mostly a lake and was the Aztec capital. And so once upon a time, I guess once upon a time being 600 years ago or so, um, there were, that whole lake would have been axolotl habitat. Um, and so over time, that's shrunk and shrunk till it's basically just this neighbor, in this neighborhood of Xochimilco. Um, and then even within there, um, as he talks about, they're, they're under assault from introduced fish. Okay, well, I am Luis Zambrano, I am a professor in the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. I am working at the Institute of Biology uh, in the same university, and also I am in charge of the reserve of eco the ecological reserve of uh, the university. 
So could you please uh, describe the reserve? Okay. Well, uh, the campus is huge. It's about, I mean, the general campus, and I will talk about the reserve within the campus. The campus is about 730-something hectares of longitude. So it's a huge campus. One-third of that, 237, is is the reserve of the of the well it's called stone in, in the direct translation is the stone reserve of um, the ecological stone reserve in the, within the campus which is a lot i mean comparatively with other places around the city which by far or natural areas are by far smaller particularly in the places that it's already urbanized so we, the campus is in the south of the city, close to the, well, closer to places that are already not urbanized, such as Ajusco Hill and, um, and Xochimilco. So it's funny, but it's one of the biggest places in terms of, of natural areas, but also is connected with the huge biomass of woods uh, in the south of the city, well, that is outside of the urbanized areas. Great. Um, and so how did it end up getting protected uh, as a reserve? Okay, uh, that's a long story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the campus started in 1951, 1952. Uh, normally, the university was in the city center. And in some moment, the government decided to send the university's really, really far away from the city center, part for political reasons, in part, but also because the university needed a lot of more space. So they found that with these 700 and something hectares, uh, the university here, and we started with the central, with the central area, which has now also, this area is uh, protected by UNESCO World, as a World Heritage because it's very nice. It's the stadium and the main building and the library, which is with a lot of very nice um, uh, murals from different, uh, well, important muralists such as, uh, such as Diego Rivera and O'Gorman. So this area, we started with this area in the first 20 years, and afterwards, uh, the, the university started to grow to different regions within this area. Uh, in some moment, about 35 years ago, in the 80s, at the beginning of the 80s, um, some local governors wanted to make a lot of buildings just within the university, just in front of the science school. And some of the science school students made a lot of research uh, in terms of biology and ecosystem services. Well, not called ecosystem services <laughs> in that moment, but yeah. about ecosystem services, uh, how much water they w- was infiltrating and those type of things. Uh, and when they saw that, they made a huge protest. Uh, the negotiations were harsh, but really interesting because we are in the university and the people hear each other. Although sometimes there are some radicals from one side and radicals from the other, but we normally try to hear each other. Good. It doesn't matter of, of, of the ideology or the ideas you have. Uh, and then the authorities of the university in the beginning of the 80s, uh, with these students, with, uh, decided to... Uh, to generate uh, a protected area because they understood that this area is highly important. So from the 82, 83, 1982, 1983, we have this reserve. At the beginning, it was really small, was 150 hectares. Uh, but different conflicts, such as this one, is, uh, appeared ar- along the years. And... Uh, and those have helped a lot the, the reserve but because it has grown from this conflict. <laughs> I started looking at your list of research projects, um, and it struck me how it, that, there, that there are some benefits for having a place to do research inside of the university. Um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of research that goes on within the reserve? Oh, yeah. Well, we have a lot of uh, a really varied of, of research 
Some of them, I mean, most of them obviously are uh, ecological or biological. Uh, uh, I, I will go deeper in that because I am a biologist, so I can <laughs> go, go a little bit more in that direction. But I also wanted to mention that also uh, architectures, uh, arch uh, yeah, architecture is, is also, uh, well, the school of architecture is highly interested in the reserve, in, particularly in landscape or urban uh, careers uh, or schools that they also wanted to make research here and wanted to understand how it's working this research. So uh, there is not only for biologists or ecologists, there are also engineers to try to understand the water infiltration. Uh. So we have a lot of type of research from different type of schools. Uh, but obviously the most the most the, the most number of, of these uh, of this uh, research is basically in ecological research. Um, one of the interesting things about, for example, uh, of the of the research they are doing are, well, first, how how many plants and which type of species we have here. Sure. Um, also, how many insects? Well, I mean, we haven't uh, understand. We haven't understood how many insects we have here, which type of species we have. Sometimes appear new species, not new species in terms of, of taxonomically, but new species from the reserve, for sure. the reserve. Um, uh, the second one is how they, the heterogeneity of the, of the reserve. I mean, although it's 237 hectares within the same place, basically, uh, it's not the same, the north than the south, uh, it's a little bit higher, for example, the south, the south, and that generates a different type of ecosystem. So different type of plants can survive in one place, and different type of animals can survive in the other place. Sure. So, the, so other type of research were uh, are going in the direction of in which place, which type of animals can survive, and in which place, which which type of plants. Um, uh, th those are well, genetic variability, also um, uh, reproduction. The interaction between plant and animals, for example, pollinization and coevolution, have been uh, researches that, that have been done in the reserve. Uh, but also other type of of interesting research, such as restoration. Sure. We have two or three huge problems in terms of introduced species and local extinctions, and we are trying now to generate, uh, for example, eradication of of two plants that are really, really bad. One of those is the eucalyptus. The second one, I don't know the name in English, but it's a grass. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, and for animals, we have huge problems with dogs and cats, basically. No? Okay. So so we are generating researches to how deal with these problems, reducing the amount of of, of these organisms in the best way to avoid any unbalance in the ecosystem for one side, but also to avoid, uh, well, massacres that not, are not necessarily sometimes, no? Do you have any particular studies that stand out to you as something as, as one of your favorites? Well, yeah, I have, I, I think, three studies that, that are really, really nice from my point of view. One of those is not mine at all. I mean, it's a <laughs> that is very, very interesting person that he's trying, he's, with two or three students, PhD students, he's trying to understand this heterogeneity within the reserve. So he's generating models, um, uh, mathematical models, to, to, to generate uh, uh, occupancy areas of different type of species. Okay. So we are now understanding, particularly with birds, and it's basically with birds and plants. So we are now understanding how and why the, the, the reserve is so heterogeneous, the heterogeneity of the reserve, and the behavioral relation between birds is changing a lot in, in different areas. So those type of things struck me, and this is a very nice uh, research. Okay. Um, the other two are, one is, I am not directly related, but I, am, I like because I normally work with restoration. Uh, the other is and very nice and very attractive because uh, it's about the reintroduction of fox of the gray fox. Oh. When I was a student, there was there were foxes here in the reserve and in the campus, and suddenly the the numbers were down, 
and we are trying to figure out why. Uh, my, hi my hypothesis is the feral dogs that, that displace them in some okay. way. Uh, but we are generating, well, first, uh, why they, they left or why they disappear. And some of the studies have been done in terms of which praise they have, if they are ill, uh, etc., etc. So the, the food web of this. Sure. And the other is how the feral dogs behave in order to see if and how we can extract them. Uh, to reduce a risk for a, a potential reintroduction of the fox. And the last one is the one that I am really, really, really involved, which is not exactly uh, from animals of the reserve, but is animals from Mexico City, which is the Ashelotl. I work basically in Xochimilco, which is a woodland or a wetland area in the south part of Mexico City. And the most important animal there and basically, from my point of view, in the central Mexico is the ashelotl, which is the salamander, a neotenic salamander that that used to would uh, used to live here in the whole Mexican Valley uh, until 50s, I suppose, and the 50s have been decreased a lot the population. So now the last remnant of uh, of distribution is is Xochimilco, which is very small and is highly perturbed and really threatened by urbanization. So. Now uh, we are working in a, in a very small place of the of of the reserve is a very managed a highly managed place is about sixteen hectares of highly managed place that we are trying to restore in general terms, but because it was a pit uh, for minery, uh, okay. they arrived to the phreatic area and then they. Four lakes were created in this area, which is highly interesting. Uh, these salamanders also were highly important in Mexico culture because, uh, well, were as as important for pre-Columbian cultures that they were considered as the twin god of the most important god mm. of the Aztecs, which well, the name was Quetzalcoatl, the most important god. And the, uh, the twin god, the ugly twin god, was the Xolotl, which is the Axolotl, basically. Huh. So it was, it is culturally, it's highly important for Mexico, this animal. And also, well, it, uh, on, until very few years, local people uh, used to eat them when they were abundant, used to eat them because it was a very, very good food for, for a nutritional, has a lot of good nutritional elements. <laughs> and also, finally, it's used for traditional medicine a lot. So the Axolotl, as you can see, is very, very interesting. But it's going to the extinction uh, in, Mex in the wife. No, uh, it's, it's directly going to extinction if we don't do anything. Yeah. Do something. I am working 12 years of my life working in the restoration of Xochimilco to avoid this extinction. But the speed of the reduction of the population is still going in the opposite direction that I would I would like to. So, so basically, one of the safe safeguards or a safe place to generate a new population that could survive in a semi-environmental uh, similar. I mean, an environmental an environment similar to to this. To these uh, areas uh, is in the in the reserve. So you were saying that you have an, an, a pit left over from mining, and so what we might call that is like a, in English a quarry. Um, so like a, a hole in the ground that gets filled up with 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 uh, groundwater. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So it's not natural because these lakes are not natural because. We need the pit to, to, to that sometimes appear, but also they are not artificial, but because nobody wants them there, so they some somebody appear because of the human, uh, I mean activities. So we have four lakes within the reserve that we can use. I mean they are new, so it's not like you are disturbing the local, the local um, uh, uh, animals. Yeah. yeah, exactly because they are completely new. It's semi-artificial, so we—it's a very a nice opportunity to generate a huge lab to, for a very good experiment. So, how to restore these areas, which are quite similar to Xochimilco, 
uh, and have very uh, regulated uh, all the environment characteristics in order to reintroduce ashalotos there for to buy a little bit of time in order to to restore Xochimilco and then reintroduce them there. Okay, how's it going? Did, have you managed to get them breeding in the in the in the lakes inside the reserve? No, basically we uh, we are in the first steps. We started okay. about half of a year ago. We first introduced some ashalotos with within cages in order to see if they were feeding already or not. Uh, we, they fed some okay. some things. But in some places, particularly, they were thinner and thinner, so we have to put them out in order to check it out what, okay. what is going on. The other places, they are filled of carp and tilapia, which is one of the threats of the ashalotus, basically, the introduced fish. So we are also working in extracting all those carp and tilapia that somebody, when they saw legs, I don't know if it happens in U.S., but in Mexico... All the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they see lake and they put fish. So they, oh, yeah. don't, uh, they are from Japan or from Africa or they put, they introduce fish. So we are trying to reduce or eliminate this carp and tilapia. And at the same time, we are uh, evaluating how they develop within these cages. Okay. Uh, my idea is that by June, July of, the ne- of this year, of this new year, the 2016, we can liberate some of them with radio tags in order to follow them along the lakes for three or four days in order to check it out, which are the best places for them, and then try to reproduce places in that, in, in that direction. So we have these reserves that are surrounded by very urban areas. Um, do you see, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about feral animals and introduced animals and introduced plants. Um, do you see or what happens, I guess, when animals from the reserve or plants, I guess, but, but I think of things wandering, it's more animals. But what happens with animals leaving the reserve and ending up in the more urban areas surrounding it? Oh, yeah, we have we have a lot of those, actually, particularly possums. Uh, OK. Yeah. Tlacuaches is in Spanish, basically. Yep. And it's also very important animal for 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 the Mexican culture. Uh, possums are ones that they, um, they they like to leave uh, the reserve. Sometimes, I mean, they don't recognize borders, so sometimes you <laughs> see them in different places. And it's funny because sometimes we receive calls from people in the middle of the city that says, I have a possum or I have a cacomistle. I don't know the name, the scientific name of the cacomistle, but it's like a, it's the mix between a raccoon and a lemur. So we call it, um, in English, you usually call it a ring-tailed cat, um, okay. even though it's not a cat, but yeah, ring-tailed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the ring-tailed cat. Uh, well, we call it cacomisle, which is by far more difficult to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we found people that they get them in the middle of the city. So these guys leave the natural areas and... Uh, in some times, in some moments, they in, well, it's not. They re- try to recover their first places that they used to live in the middle of the city. So we see them in the roofs of the houses or in in between walls. And we try to rescue them. And the, our problem is that we used to liberate them here in the reserve, but now we have a lot of possums. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we need to find the way that. So, but the possums aren't living. So, so in the United States, possums are are routinely urban animals that that live only in people's houses or in trees and under their their porches. So, are uh, they are they just living their whole lives out in the city, or are they moving between the two spaces? I think that some of them, the, the ones that we found in around the, the the reserve, because we found a lot. I find a lot of of them around the reserve, they live in the reserve and then live out. And the ones that live in the middle of the city, then I suppose that they were born there. And okay. Nobody saw them because also we are urban people and the people doesn't see nature at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and is it similar with the, I'm going to try to say it, the Kako Mishlaves? Uh-huh. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> do, they, do they live um, in the long sort of... In, all the time outside of the like in urban areas, or did they are they mainly 
um, traveling between the reserve or, or wooded areas and, and urban areas? You, I think that I see them in I, I, I see them mostly in, in wooden areas and in the reserve. Okay. Mostly are there. Sometimes they called us and said, actually, in 26th of December, just before Christmas, a, a friend of mine called me and said, okay, we capture a, a cacomisle. Uh, so please come from come, come for from it for to pick him up. Yeah. So uh, we have to pick him up, but uh, because they they he used to live in the roof, and he made a lot of noises. <laughs> That's the reason they didn't like him. But I think that that is also urban. But most of them live in the reserve and in the wooden areas. So when I talked to you last time, I said we were going to do an experiment on axolotls. Yeah. We did it. There was a thesis. We wrote it up, submitted it, and I got the reviews yesterday. Wow. And they were like really great reviews. Okay. Good. So it's basically a accepted with minor revisions. Congratulations. Right? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. We were trying to understand their maternal investment. So when salamanders and when lots of organisms, you know, reproduce, uh, the first nutrients that the, that the offspring are going to be living off of is whatever their mother gives them. Um, and then that's pretty much it. Uh, so for something like a salamander, the axolotl, the female will, will lay her eggs and um, she has a choice. She can either take the amount of nutrients that she has and divide it up into lots of little packages uh, or she and she can make you know a lot of offspring um, but each one doesn't get very many calories or she can make bigger packages fewer offspring and then uh, the offspring have more resources yeah. uh, to to make it into the world and it depends on a lot of factors how much uh you know, uh, how many calories, how much yolk, uh, she can put into each egg. And so I developed a technique in grad school to what we call allometrically engineer or manipulate the amount of yolk in an embryo, um, by, by doing a surgery on the embryo under a microscope before they have even a nervous system developed. So they can't feel anything. Um, and I make a little needle, go under the scope, suck out a little bit of the yolk, and then we have a control and we can uh, compare the effect of having more yolk or less yolk in, in an offspring. And I've done this for a lot of different ambistomatid salamanders, which is the family of salamanders that axolotls are in. Um, you know, Salamanders that might be familiar to people are like the spotted salamander, the tiger salamander. Those were all in the same family. Um, and I've done four species of salamanders before the axolotl. And they all had various types of effects on early life history traits. So Not consistent among the across the family? Different effects okay. in different species. <clears throat> okay. Different levels of response okay so uh some species hatched out early because they monitor apparently how much yolk they have and when they start running low uh, then they gotta nice. hatch out and they gotta go find their own food um they they turn out smaller no surprise they have less resources uh they they actually monitor that and they grow smaller bodies uh survival can be affected, viability, uh, various things like that. And the way it was looking was that the animals that had really big eggs had really big effects when I took out yolk. And the animals that had really small eggs had almost, had very low effects. Which was the opposite of what I predicted. <laughs> <laughs> because I thought the ones with small eggs were just going to do terribly when I took out, you know, a little bit of, of yolk because they're so close to that bottom threshold. Yeah. But what it turns out is the ones, there's this co-evolution where the ones that have big yolky bellies and big eggs, 
they've evolved to rely on those nutrients. And so when you take it away, they're kind of spoiled. Mm. They tank. They do terribly. The ones that have really small legs, they apparently don't expect a lot. And they show very low amounts of uh, response. Okay. And to our great surprise, when we took out 20% of the yolk reserves from axolotls, nothing happened. So they're the small egg variety? All ambistomatids have relatively chunky eggs compared to other amphibians. But within the family, they have they have moderate to 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 smallish eggs. The okay. ones that we were getting from the from the lab. So these are raised in a scientific lab. How do you get so so talk about I guess axolotls as as I don't know what the right word is, is a model organism or Yeah, it, yeah. Like well it's you a, just order them up from a It's a really interesting <clears throat> story. It was at least 150 years ago, they imported some axolotls to, to France because it was a really interesting species. They have crazy life history where they they don't undergo metamorphosis in the traditional sense of a, of a salamander having a larva and then metamorphosing from the water and going onto land. Instead, they remain aquatic and they look like giant tadpoles for their entire life. They reproductively mature, and then they stay in the water. Yeah. And so that was really interesting, and it raises a lot of big questions about evolution, the mechanisms. And now uh, the axolotls are studied for uh, limb generation primarily, a lot of genetic works. It's, It's essentially a species that now exists almost nowhere else. And I, I, looking it up, I found easily found hobbyist axolotl information where they breed them to be mm-hmm. different color morphs and oh, that yeah. kind of thing. They have put strains uh, that are true breeding uh, GFP, green fluorescent protein, which is a protein that has been this this is is taken from, from yeah. jellyfish, oh, okay. actually. And they glow bright green. And they, and they breed that true. And there's albino ones and you know we we were working on the quote-unquote wild type um which may or may not be what wild animals look like at this point Uh, it's a little hard to know somewhere there has to be some kind of nightclub which has a tank of a black light and a tank of fluorescent Axolotls. Oh, well, I'm I mean, sure there's like fluorescent zebrafish too. I don't. You can you can buy fluorescent GFP expressing and and other fluorescent protein expressing fish right down at the at your local PetSmart or oh, really? Petco. Wow! I remember when I was a kid, I had neon yeah. tetras, and so this takes the neon concept to hold it right. Oh yeah! Hold you turn out the light <laughs> and still see Literally, them. they glow. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very like cool. Like vanilla, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how to think of that. <laughs> like, it's... The axolotls are the ones that I... That we get from the lab. They're only for science. So they're, yeah. not, they're not for the pet trade. Wait a yeah. second. What? You know about the, the jellyfish tank you can order from the internet? What? You can just order it. There's like a, a, a YouTube video and you can order oh. jellyfish like for your desk or whatever. Is it actual jellyfish? Yeah. Okay. And there's a whole thing, but Vanilla Ice was on the commercial for it. Sometimes Get next guest host, Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Will he bring Flavor Flav with him? <laughs> I know. Yeah, they're in the show together, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the next one was on recommendation of a professor at Hofstra named Russell Burke. Um, that but name's familiar. He studies... Uh, I was talking to him about two topics we're going to include in later episodes... Uh, so he was recommending some other people to talk to, including our next interviewee out in California about pond turtles, western pond turtles, and sort of, among other things, the effects of urbanization and how to deal with urbanization on them. So they, they get lonely. They don't, because they moved out of their parents' house, and they kind of <laughs> like, you know, they're living in places kind of new. They don't really get... You know, they're, they're around lots of others, but they don't really connect. You know, Southern California is like that. My name is Philip Spinks. I'm a 
staff research associate at the University of California, Los Angeles in Brad Schaefer's lab. Western pond turtle is the only native freshwater turtle species in California. And um, that's actually not quite correct since we just split it into two species. So what used to be the western pond turtle is now composed of two distinct lineages or species, one being the northwestern pond turtle, which ranges from about the southern San Joaquin Valley north to Washington State through Oregon. And then the southern population of the western pond turtle ranges from along the central coast ranges in central California down south through Southern California and into Baja, California, northern portion of Baja, California. So it's kind of a misnomer, the pond turtle. They're actually, they live in ponds, of course, but you can find them in streams, slow-moving streams, fast-moving streams, lakes, uh, rivers, little oxbows of rivers, little um, quiet parts of bigger rivers, where that's where you'll find them. So they're very, they're very habitat generalist. You can find them in um, stock ponds, you know, tank there ponds that are purposely created to um, water cattle and agriculture. You can find them in um, um, the, not drainage ditches, but the, the canals that supply the uh, agricultural fields here in California. And you find them in just a variety of habitat. In urban settings, you find them in city park, the, the ponds and lakes in city parks. Um, how are they doing generally, and how are they doing in um, differently in urban settings? Right. So in general, they're doing. It depends on which which part of the population you're talking about. The northern species uh, we call that Emmys marmorata. That is that one's doing actually pretty well. Um, there's a lot of native or undisturbed habitat in northern California and Oregon, and um, they're doing pretty well. Even in urban spots, they do pretty well. In the southern part of the range, it's not clear. It's not. We don't think they're doing as well, mainly because there's not as much habitat. And what habitat there is, is heavily um, impacted by uh, human populations. Mainly, you know, if there's if there's a pond and then there's a year later there's a Walmart on top of that pond, then obviously you won't have any pond trails there anymore. And, um, you know, her, urban encroachment is probably the worst, is, is the worst pop, the worst problem facing the southern population of the, of the species, of the southern species, sorry. Like I live outside of the range of the red-eared slider, but they're still everywhere. Mm-hmm. How do they handle sort of mixes of um, of exotic turtles in urban settings? Yeah, that's a, that's an important question. It's one we don't have a good grip on. <clears throat> so we know that the redder slider, um, that's tracking me script to elegans, is one of the most invasive species on Earth. I think it's in the top 25 of most invasive animals. And it's a very good turtle. <laughs> it's just able to live pretty much anywhere. It, it's very adaptable. It's very hardy. It's just a really good turtle. It does really good at being a turtle. And you you find them all over the world, and <clears throat> especially in California. You If you go to an urban lake, chances are you'll see a slider and not a western pond turtle. And uh, part of that is because they're a little more noticeable. They have that big red slash on the side of their ear. That's why they're obviously why they call the red ear slider. And um, and they're not as uh, – they don't seem to be as timid as our pond turtle. Our pond turtle is very timid. See, most of the time you won't see them because they hear you or see you approaching, and they 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 just kind of plop off into the water. You might hear a little plop, see a little ripple, but that's pretty much it. Unless you're real careful and you're stealthy, or you have some binoculars, um, a lot of times you won't even see them, even if they are there. But you will see the pond, the the slider because they're not as uh, they typically tend to be not as skittish, and uh, again because of the red, they're much easier for people to see. Um, it's really hard to put your finger on that and say definitively, yes, they are negatively impacting um, our native pond turtles. My my guess is that they are, but again, you know, I can't come out and just show a study where it says absolutely this is this is clear cut evidence that they do. Although I think it's pretty clear that they do, just okay. because they take up space, they eat food, and they also. Um, it's been reported there's been uh, diseases brought in by uh, by um, ridger sliders. Because a lot of times what happens is people have them as pets, and they keep them. You know, they're the rest. Of the the red eared slider is a real aggressive kind of a bitey turtle. And you get them when you're small. They're small. They're just absolutely gorgeous turtles. And you have them for a while, and they get big, and they get stinky, and they get bitey, and you try. You know, they'll bite you if they get a chance. 
And so people would just take them outside and literally dump them in the nearest creek or pond because they don't want to kill it, you know. And that's and it, because they're brought from these, a lot of times, unsanitary conditions, they bring um, diseases with them. So this was actually shown in Washington State where um, there's a couple, they have a couple populations that are they're fairly decent, but they were getting hammered by this. I believe it was a upper respiratory tract infection that they, was pretty clear it was brought in by um, non-native sliders. So there's definitely some negative impacts. Uh, we just don't know the breadth of it, the scope of it. Are there any cities where they're doing well or easy to spot, or is it just sort of you go to a, a waterway in Los Angeles or San Francisco and Portland, you'll, you'll probably see them? Yeah, yeah. There's some in Golden Gate Park. Um, they're doing. They're working there to um, increase the native population there. They're going to be doing some. I believe they're going to be doing a Head Start program there, releasing native pond turtles uh, there at the. I think it might be the Golden Gate Park, if I remember right. And you can see a lot of them at the at the UC Davis um, Arboretum Waterway. It's a nice large waterway that we worked at for many years to. Um, monitor the pond turtle population there and they're good they're quite healthy there there's quite a few there and um yeah you can most places you can probably there's a, probably always a few natives but again they're real hard to see real stealthy real real um skittish and if you're not really if you don't really know how to look for them you probably won't see them can you describe the head starting program real quick just for people who aren't familiar with that kind of thing? Right. Yeah, so head starting is so the one of the biggest problems with the that native populations of turtles face is that the the young hatchlings or obviously they're young. <laughs> the hatchlings <laughs> are, are tiny. They're about the size of a quarter. And they're basically food for anything. Um bullfrogs, unfortunately bullfrogs are a, a real problem for hatchling turtles. And um bass and uh Predatory birds, um, anything and that I'll can eat. Point out that the first two items you just mentioned are also non-native invasives, yes. right? Yes, that's a very good point. Right? Um, yes, and bullfrogs are just a horrible problem. Uh, crayfish eat youngs. Um, even diving beetles can can eat can take out hatchlings. So hatchlings are extremely vulnerable. But when a turtle gets older and gets to be about full size. Then they're pretty bulletproof. I mean, you know, except for yahoos that go out and shoot them, which does happen. Um, they're pretty tough. There's not too many things that'll take them out. And so what happens is if you have an area where there's a lot of bullfrogs or a lot of crayfish or other urban predators like raccoons and stuff, you can um, grow them up in captivity to a certain size and then let them go out in the wild. When they get to that certain size, they're, they're a lot less vulnerable to predators. There's a lot of controversy about the head starting pro- programs, though, even, even in the turtle community. There's quite a few people that say it's pointless because <clears throat> unless you get rid of the problems at that habitat, why add turtles to it? You know, if you if you have a if you have a pond that's full of bullfrogs and you let a bunch of natives or a bunch of head starter turtles go there, sure they'll grow to adulthood, but the second they start reproducing, all the hatchlings are going to be eaten. So you know, what have you really done? You just added a few turtles to a pond. And that's a valid point. Um, so, you know, you really should, for head starting programs, should be more uh, inclusive than that and, or more encompassing than that and try to address the problems at that site wherever you're letting the turtles go, uh, the head start turtles, and make for a better success rate. Because ultimately the whole point is to get uh, reproducing populations going. One last sort of question. This is something that's, that's kind of very speculative, but one of the aspects of urbanization is, you know, is you get animals chopped up or the ranges chopped up. That mm-hmm. um, it's hard for a pond turtle to cross an interstate. Um, and so, it, you know, it, just a, just curious what your thoughts are on 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 sort of uh, on how um, on sort of how urbanization might be affecting turtles in the really long term. Yes, in the really long term. Well, I mean, first off, it's hard to say. Yeah. Because, you know, we can't really predict where areas are going to be built up. Um, you can you can probably predict that if there's an open space, you'll probably have a house on it given enough time, especially in Southern California. But in the long term, it, it you, you, you would have to be pessimistic because there's, like you said, you know, turtles don't do well crossing highways. You get something like the 405 in Southern California where there's, you know, eight lanes. And a concrete barrier in between the lanes. You know, there's there's not too many critters going to make it across that. 
And, you know, they've even been shown to be um, barriers for birds. Birds don't like to fly across these huge highways either for the most part. So you can predict that it's going to be negative. But um, And that's why it's really important to do the kind of genetic studies we're doing now is to get that kind of baseline information to know what's there before it's gone. Because when you do want to go and put something back, like reintroduce reintroduction programs, you don't really know what was there before. But, you know, we do know that, you know, habitat fragmentation is is detrimental because those isolated populations leads to inbreeding and local populations that are are separated from one another given enough time. But the flip side is it doesn't take a lot of immigration, that is, movement of a palm turtle from one population to another, you know, like from a a large healthy breeding population to a small into a small uh, have, uh, fragmented population it doesn't take much of that movement to kind of maintain that genetic integrity of those smaller fragmented mm-hmm. populations and so there's programs like you know um oh facilitated immigration where you know just a fancy way of saying you pick up a pond turtle from a big healthy population and you drop it off in a smaller fragmented one just to bring in new genetic material you'd really hope to be able to manage populations such that you don't have to do that. That's sort of a last resort kind of thing. If you're a, an average nature lover, you know, listening to this, um, and you happen to live in the range of the, the pond turtle, are there things people can do to either help or be less harmful? Absolutely. Um, especially people that have uh, ponds or, or creeks rent their property. Um, one of the things that's, critical for pond turtles or any organism, you know, is, is, is breeding, is reproduction. And a lot of places, a good way to help is just having um, have the turtles have access to, the pond turtles having access to sites to lay eggs. That's really important. You know, clearing brush from the, like, uh, hillsides and stuff or wood pond turtle would, would lay their eggs is a good thing. And even doing something as simple as, like, not leaving your dog and cat food outside because that provide sustenance for raccoons and skunks and possums. And these are the sorts of things that prey on nests. They're nest predators. They'll sniff out a, a turtle egg or a turtle nest, dig up the egg and eat them. So something as simple as that would, would help. And also, you know, if, if you get a pet turtle, don't let it go. <laughs> don't <laughs> let it go off wild. Exotic invasive. So we're back and... Um... There's a few themes in here that that actually ended up resonating to me about uh, with the, sorry resonating resonating I thought and now we'll try to get into these more general themes a little bit um, with the discussion of the um, reserve in Mexico City and that in general sort of with the need to manage it um, for exotic species um, I cut out a little discussion actually now I think about it about there's about in Mexico City studying whether they can reintroduce a fox species, which has sort of got, has been has disappeared from the reserve, um, and so the gray uh, fox. It was, I think it was a gray fox species, um, and so the that it, just in terms of a space that when you ever have a space, whenever you have a space in an urban setting, if you are if you are trying to manage it for native, if you want native species to be there, you almost always have to manage it somehow. Um, it's a weird way to say it. Like, it's hard to find the baseline. You can't just be hands off in urban environments and expect you to these species to persist. Right. Right. Well said. And so the so that is true there. Um, and also, there's the question of individual species. We got into a little discussion um, about on the on the pond turtle side about uh, you know how maybe you can it, it, it can it, you can do a lot with a little bit of moving individual animals around um, to try to improve the, the genetic diversity within isolated populations. Um, and then on an individual species level, um, we have the axolotl, which is virtually extinct from its native habitat in Mexico City, um, and which, you know, the, at, the, at the reserve, they're trying to take advantage of some old quarry pits um, to set up uh, sort of a, a fresh, sort of a reserve breeding population um, to try to keep the species going and have it somewhere as a backup to, in case everything goes totally south on the ones that are still left in their original habitat, or if they 
um, just, uh, just might want to use them for, for reintroduction. So um, you were recently involved with the toad repopulation project. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, here in Philadelphia, in, in, in the area, we have uh, 200-plus years of urbanization going on. And there are little pockets of green if you look uh, on the maps, but it's really hard if you're a small animal that doesn't disperse well and to get into these uh, habitats if if uh, there's not good corridors or if if they've been extirpated or eradicated uh, from certain habitats. So uh, in Working with a local uh, nature center called Briarbush Nature Center in uh, Abington Township, they have a pond and they have 12 acres of, of forest around it, but they didn't have any, any toads. And the naturalist there, Mark, said to me, you know, we have all these invasive earthworms everywhere. And I was wondering... <clears throat> Um, wouldn't it be cool to have a native species that ate this invasive species? And can we get toads in our, in our pond, running around in our forest, eating these earthworms? And I said, well, I don't know if they're going to eat all the earthworms, but I bet you we can get toads in here. And so... Toads, you're talking about American toads, which will breed in a puddle in the middle of a path. They are, yeah. are generalists par excellence yeah. they uh really know how to how to get get it on and and reproduce <laughs> but they're really bad at finding um habitats and getting to habitats that have you know miles and miles of of roads because they will get squashed on on the roads so we were fortunate enough to find a nearby population that's already being used for outreach and education at the uh, Roxborough Reservoir in conjunction with the Friends of the Roxborough Reservoir, the uh, City of Phil Philadelphia Parks and Rec Department? Parks and Recreation, yep. Par Parks and Recreation, uh, as well as the Schuylkill Center. And they have been doing a really cool project helping toads cross from the Schuylkill Center forest area across the road to an old um, water storage reservoir. reservoir, yeah, which is at the top of a hill. And the toads have to cross this road, and every spring they were getting mowed down by people driving all over them. And so they got permission from the town or from the city to shut down the road, and literally hundreds of people come out on these uh, nights. This is a picture of my daughter, uh, not this year but last year when we went out for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could not believe how many people came out to these things. It is so awesome to see everybody yeah. out there trying to help toads cross the road. Yeah, it's really heartwarming. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, we're talking thousands of people. Like, I think 5,000 in one year was, was one of the estimates that they yeah, had. Yeah, I, I went out there maybe the first year. The first year. Yeah. I've been out there a few yeah. years since. Yeah. They've been, I think they're in like their sixth year. Or they've been doing it for, for a while. I often look at the houses across from the reservoir and, and dream. Because mm. I, I work very close to the reservoir. Yeah. It's an it's interesting place. You it don't is. see ponds on tops of hills very often. <laughs> it's all surrounded by by towers and and things, yeah. uh, radio towers and cell towers. It's, I think the second highest point in Philadelphia. So that's where oh. the uh, what's yeah. the I think, No, no, no. Maybe the third. I think Chestnut. I think it's. I think Chestnut Hills at the top. For some reason, they don't have towers on it. And then there's then there's um, Roxborough, and then there's also right at uh, Hawk Hill, I guess, or mm. St. Joe's, and like. Where all the radio stations are, so like, uh, um, where all, the, where all, the, all the TV stations are on City Avenue, and then across the Schuylkill, more like, is at the top of that hill is Roxborough, where all the radio towers are. And so, how do you have an indication so, of how the toads are doing? Because they would have hatched out and metamorphosed. Well, so the the project that we did, we got the um, we got them as newly hatched tadpoles out of the out of the reservoir. And I brought them back to my lab at Arcadia, and one of my students, uh, Sarah, is doing her thesis on 
raising these and introducing them to Briarbush. And what we wanted to know was, how does the, the larval or tadpole environment uh, that they're raised up under affect their ability to colonize a new area? And how does it affect their survival? So what, what I did was I drove around to every pet store in the Philadelphia area and bought all the 10-gallon aquariums I could find. I had 56 10-gallon aquaria in my lab. <laughs> um, Each with filters and stuff? Every one of them. <laughs> and we raised tadpoles. What did you feed them? Um, we fed them rabbit chow. We had a couple that died. We had a few that died on us. We were trying to raise them up this spring. Yeah. We, we got some some nice rabbit chow with I think Timothy and and things like that. But it's it's common to raise these things in the lab uh, un, under that. So we used for um, trapping mosquitoes on West Nile virus of rabbit chow. It seems mm-hmm. to be ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's cheap and they they like it. So in some of the tanks we had ten tadpoles. Uh, in a 10-gallon aquarium. In some of the tanks, we had 20 tadpoles, and in some of the tanks, we had 40 tadpoles. So you're densities effect? Yeah, okay. and so it's competition and density. And generally, what you find is that if you are raised under more competitive environments with more tadpoles in the same tank, <laughs> you may metamorphose later and at smaller body size. Because you have to fight for more resources and there's and more competition, so they're yeah. generally negative effects. Now it's not universal, but okay. it, it's that's the that's the common theme. And then we released, and we've done we've released over 800 toads to um, Briarbush, newly metamorphosed, them? and we're marking them uh, with. The most common way of marking amphibians, which is toe clipping. Okay. And when the animals are newly metamorphosed, they're tiny. I mean, a, a metamorphosing toad is about the size of a raisin. We anesthetize them uh, on, on ice. We just okay. chill them down. Then they don't feel any pain with a very sharp little, actually a toenail clipper. Say, yeah. We clip off two toes on the front, le- on the front hand. Uh, next to each other at the base and what grows back is one big wide toe and so depending on which toes we clip on which hands we now know what the larval environment that that toad experienced was so we can find an adult toad for the rest of its life and know oh you had nine competitors or you had 39 competitors when you were growing up and now so we release, like, we're releasing the same numbers of the different densities, and we are tracking them. Every week we go out and, and sample them, and we hope to establish a population. Uh, and eventually they'll be self-reproducing you know, in, in the pond, hopefully. Um, but in the meantime, we can study the effects of the early life history to see, well, does it have a detrimental long-term effect to be grown under uh, high density or does it wash out or it, how does that play out in, in the wild? And this is something that hasn't, hasn't been done before. Um, and it was, we just had the opportunity to ask all from this guy saying, Hey, you know, we don't have any toads. Yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm an, I'm a new professor at Arcadia. I like doing work with local, with local people. Yeah. Briarbush is right down the street from us, and I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to do what they wanted to do, right? Yeah. We have different ideas, and, and this was just one that we both agreed on real real quick would be fun and, and cool. Notice that they had to go into the city to get to, <laughs> to bring to the suburbs. <laughs> we, we wanted the closest population uh, and the biggest population. That's right. Uh, because we didn't want to have a negative effect on any uh, on the source population. Everybody's toads from one spot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we wanted to introduce a toad uh, that would be closely related genetically and yeah. have experienced similar types of environments. And okay. so this was, it's about uh, six miles away. So 
you know, it's far for a little toad to walk, but it it's close. In, in the grand in scheme terms. of toaddom, it's pretty close. It's yeah. kind of interesting pointing out that the nearest habitat with toad pop, you know, robust toad population is in a city. You know, we always joke that our definition of city versus suburbs is. You know, like the suburbs of Philly would We're be snobs about the suburbs of Philadelphia would be city would be city type habitat, and the rest of America, you know, the majority of American cities, Abington Township looks like, you know, Milwaukee or like Los Angeles or something in terms of like housing density. But Philly is just extra dust. But you had this intentional preservation of open space in Philadelphia, yeah, um, because it's so old, and, and the people, you know, William Penn and whatever, and then the War Department preserving land because of. Uh, William Penn, wanted, you know, who founded the city in 1682, um, wanted to be a green country town. Yeah. And so, he, and, and the War Department had the foresight to space. purchase all the land that they could along our, our water courses to, to prevent industrialization from polluting the water. And then when the sprawl happened, you know, post World War One, and then again post World War Two. They didn't have the same kind of mentality. So even and, though and it's you can, like, and you're gonna have a harder time finding green space in the immediate suburbs than you can in Philadelphia. Right. They might have yeah. Norway maples and like lawns, but they're not actually good habitat for, you know, dozens of miles surrounding, you know, Philadelphia. Part of what I like about I mean one of the things that turns me on in an urban nature kind of way about the Roxborough toad population is it's an example of toads or of wildlife using what I think of as old industrial space. So we've got a similar story, actually, probably in the preceding episode when we post them, um, in our discussion with Keith Russell from the Audubon uh, and about their work at to establishing a nature center in North Philly um, at the East Park Reservoir. Hmm. Um, it's another case of sort of an old, unused basin of a reservoir um, which is a very, what it's built, it's a very industrial thing. It's built, it's got, you know, these have brick facing, you know, concrete roads around yeah, them. Yeah, they dug it with steam shovels and by hand. Right. And lined it with, lined it with bricks 120 years ago. Yeah. I mean. And so these are, these are. no joke. It's, it's like several, it's at least a couple acres. And so it's. Oh, we said old industrial, I was thinking like, like a, a club where everybody's wearing trench coats and like. <laughs> it was in the, the skinny puppy. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was, <laughs> so, uh, um, so, so I like how in both cases, you know, it, it, it in both cases actually probably only took like sixty years or so for trees to grow in and like vegetation to grow in and for the basins to fill up enough that um, you have. Um, I don't know if you have fish. I think you got fish at the East Park Reservoir. Um, yeah, fish. Um, rogue fishermen introduced them. Yeah, there you go. So you probably fish in both. You certainly have toads which hopped their way in probably to both. Um, you have waterfowl. I don't know if waterfowl's been looked at in, in Roxburgh Reservoir. Is it too shallow? But I'm not sure I need to get in there. Park, and like, I remember there's, there's definitely uh, geese and, and ducks. And there's stuff that flies in uh, in the evenings. Probably a lot of starlings and that sort of thing. But by the thousands. Mm, yeah. And uh, we also saw a, a snapping turtle up there. He's nodding at me right now. So that means... I mean, snapping trolls will get around. They'll walk. Um, sorry, I'm killing a grease ant that's... Made I guess it's not impossible for one that walked up all the way from the Schuylkill world. They wander. I mean, people will talk about... I mean, sometimes it's a female oh, yeah. laying eggs. Sometimes they're just like... They go for hikes. They go walk about. I found yeah. them in the middle of woods, like a mile from the nearest yeah. water. They just sort of, hey, I'll go see if there's a stream over there. Yeah, and, yeah. and to get into Roxburgh, they got to get under chain-link fences... And scoot down, you know, forty-five degree angle, um, you know, brick lined. Yeah, you know, it's it's like turtle. a it's like a slide. And so that they, they get in there and Roxburgh in East Park. I remember Keith commenting about hearing toads calling in the spring. So I think they got American toads in the East Park Reservoir also. Oh, they definitely do. Uh, so it's a neat in both of them. It's it, we have stories of of. Of sort of wildlife reclaiming old industrial space in cities. Um, and we've got sort of like a discussion of the, the need to manage these things. Maybe the aliens that just beamed us that, that, uh, that <laughs> signal, maybe we go to their planet and... Because and, 
Because they're, they're supposed to be... If a single strong enough to get here from that planet, then they're supposed to be, what, type 2 civilizations, which means they like harness all the power from the sun, which means that they probably, they've probably been existing for millions of years. So we can go there and see what wildlife lives in their sewers. It's only 30 million light years away. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> we've... Uh, so well, so if they're listening... If you're listening, hey guys. <laughs> we want to check out your herbs. Exactly. <laughs> they probably don't have herbs. They probably have something else, though. We don't know, but we want to see it. We um, already, even though we, your, your biota is going to be completely new to us, we already want to know your urban wildlife. There you go. Specifically. So, uh, on, that, on that note, um, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, please tell everyone about the podcast. Please like us on your podcasting platform of choice. Um, please... Please communicate with us. Let us know what you think. Um, or tell us about great ideas. Or record some. Wildlife bling. And send it to us. Um, you can tweet at us at HerbWildlifeCast. You can email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Um, get in touch. Uh, and until next episode, thank you very much. Thank you to Tobias for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's fun. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. All right. And we're done. So, hi, my name is Sylita Guy. I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto studying urban bat populations as part of my thesis. Now, for the last three months, I've been working with a team of five people to capture and radio track big brown bats in one of Toronto's largest urban parks, High Park. In fact, I'm currently in the field at the moment with one of my assistants, Josh, trying to catch some bats. Now, one of the pieces of equipment we have with us is this really awesome acoustic detector. It's used by bat scientists and enthusiasts alike to help them hear the ultrasonic echolocation calls of bats. In fact, you can hear mine right now. And as you can hear for yourself, we aren't picking anything up, which means there probably aren't any bats around. Also means we probably won't catch anything tonight. But that's okay, because it's been a really great summer. We've caught over 200 bats of four different species. We've also collected really great radio tracking data um, on where bats are feeding at night and roosting or sleeping during the day. Now together, this data is going to help us to understand how big brown bats use space in urban environments and how this may differ from how they use space in their natural habitats. We have what we call the ELP principle, that everyone loves turtles.